Okay, well, you'll probably all feel slightly better and slightly worse at the same time. You've shared an embarrassing moment, but you've also heard that other people get embarrassed too. Just for the interest of fairness, I will um, I'll just tell you one of mine. There's a lot. Um, I've chosen an example from school because, I don't know about you, but for me, most feelings of shame are sort of concentrated in that in that sort of area. And I was in a tutor group, and we used to be seated. Um, I don't know if anyone else had to do this, but we used to be sat around the room from A to Z by name. So all the tables, you know, from Paul Berry through to Tom Wright, can still remember the names. And I always had to sit next to the same two people. And when we were in a lesson that we corporately hated, so science, for example, we would decide when the teacher's back was turned to try and get a Mexican wave all the way from A to Z. You know, all the way. And proper kind of sitting down, standing up. In science, it's more difficult because you're on a sort of weird, wobbly stool. Um, But anyway, I found that really difficult because I was essentially a a goody two-shoes. And I didn't want to misbehave. But neither did I want that Mexican wave to always end at the letter D. I was like, I've got to do this. Peer pressure is is a real thing. It's a real thing. So anyway, there was this one fateful day. We began our wave, and Mr. Jeffries was writing on the board, and he whipped round, and everyone was sitting down other than one person, <laughs> like this. And I just eye contact like rabbit in the headlights. And he just went, get out! <laughs> and it was the one time, in fact, I had two detentions in my entire time at school, and that was one of them. It was very shameful, very embarrassing. It was sort of a badge of honour amongst the other students, but I was very embarrassed. Anyway... Let's hold on to those feelings of shame, (laughs) because we'll come back to them later. Most preachers will not say that. (laughs) So we're going to start by looking at 2 Samuel 6, and um, remember we're going to start with attempt number one to bring the ark into Jerusalem. Let's read together. David again brought together all the able young men of Israel, 30,000. He and all his men went to Bala in Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name, the name of the Lord Almighty, who is enthroned between the cherubim on the ark. They set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it in from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. Uzzah and Ahio, sons of Abinadab, were guiding the new cart with the ark of God on it, and Ahio was walking in front of it. David and all Israel were celebrating with all their might before the Lord, with castanets, harps, lyres, timbrels, sistrums, and cymbals. I practiced that line. (laughs) When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down and he died there beside the ark of God. Then David was angry because the Lord's wrath had broken out against Uzzah. And to this day, that place is called Perez Uzzah, which means outbreak against Uzzah. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord ever come to me? He was not willing to take the ark of the Lord to be with him in the city of David. Instead, he took it to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite, The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite for three months, and the Lord blessed him and his entire household. So that's the end of attempt number one. Completely disastrous. 
And for us, I think, as modern readers, it's one of those, oh, no, it's one of those really uncomfortable passages where you read about someone dying at the hand of God. And it, and it sort of feels like Uzzah has done something quite logical, doesn't it? He's reached out, he's steadied, steadied the ark, but we'll come back to that later. So let's move on to attempt number two. Now, King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. So David went to bring up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. So basically, David was really afraid. He watched and he waited. And he heard the Lord's blessing had come, and then he attempted again to move the ark. But more happened in this time. And I just wondered if you do have Bibles, whether you quickly leave your finger in 2 Samuel and quickly turn to 1 Chronicles 15 with me. There's a little more detail. The story is covered in 1 Chronicles as well. And there's a little more detail there. So in 1 Chronicles 15, verse 1, it says... After David had constructed buildings for himself in the city of David, he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Then David said, no one but the Levites may carry the ark of God, because the Lord chose them to carry the ark of the Lord and to minister before him forever. And then if you skip on to verse 12, David's called together the Levites, and he says to them, You are the heads of the Levitical families. You and your fellow Levites are to consecrate yourselves and bring up the ark of the Lord, the God of Israel, to the place I've prepared for it. It was because you, the Levites, did not bring it up the first time that the Lord our God broke out in anger against us. And this is the significant line. We did not inquire of him. We did not inquire of God about how to do it in the prescribed way. And the Levites carried the ark of God with poles on their shoulders as Moses had commanded in accordance with the word of the Lord. And the chapter goes on to be really clear about who's supposed to then do what in worship, who are the most skilled musicians, and so on. So if you go back to 2 Samuel 6, verse 13, sorry, that's just a nice painting. Um, when those who were carrying the ark of the Lord had taken six steps, and this is the Levites with the poles on their shoulders, he sacrificed a bull and a fattened calf. Wearing a linen ephod, David was dancing before the Lord with all his might, while he and all Israel were bringing up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sounds of trumpets. As the ark of the Lord was entering the city of David, Mishael, daughter of Saul, watched from a window. Mishael, daughter of Saul, by the way, is also David's wife. And when she saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, she despised him in her heart. They brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings before the Lord. After he'd finished sacrificing the burnt offerings and fellowship offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord Almighty. Then he gave a loaf of bread, a cake of dates, and a cake of raisins to each person in the whole crowd of Israelites, both men and women. And all the people went to their homes. When David returned home to bless his household, Mishael, daughter of Saul, came out to meet him and said, in a sort of phrase 
dripping with sarcasm, how the king of Israel has distinguished himself today, going around half naked in full view of the slave girls of his servants, as any vulgar fellow would. David said to Michal, it was before the Lord who chose me rather than your father or anyone from his house when he appointed me ruler over the Lord's people Israel. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this, and I will be humiliated in my own eyes. But by these slave girls you spoke of, I'll be held in honor. And Mishael, daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. That's how the chapter ends. So let's look at how these two attempts compare, because I think there's something quite useful that we can draw from that. So in attempt number one, there's no inquiry of the Lord. David doesn't ask God how he wants to do it. And in attempt number two, David consults God and his word. And if you were here a couple of weeks ago, you'll know that Andy O'Connell said that David knew how to inquire of the Lord. That's something that he did throughout his life. It's almost as if this time he went, ah, yeah, okay, yeah, I knew what I should have done. Attempt number one, Uzzah and Ahio lead the procession with uh, the ark on a cart pulled by oxen. And in attempt number two, the Levites, who are a consecrated nation of priests, carry the ark with poles so they don't ever touch it as per Moses' instruction. And in attempt number one, no sacrifices are brought that, that are recorded anyway. And in attempt number two, there are sacrifices made every six steps. And it says that there are sacrifices made after six steps, but commentators generally agree that it's every six steps. Quite a lengthy process. And then when they arrive, there are even more. So David realizes the utmost importance of inquiring of God in worship because God had a view. And I think there are three things that I'd like to draw out for us today that I think are applicable to us too. The first one is come clean. The second one is make a sacrifice. And the third one is lose your dignity. So let's start with come clean. To approach God, it's important to come clean, David finds. And I'm really pleased that this came up a couple of weeks ago when Andy spoke, because I feel it's really important to share today. So for the Levites, they were asked to be consecrated. And consecration meant sacrifices, ritual washing, abstaining from certain foods and drinks and activities that were considered to be unclean, essentially becoming ritually pure in every way, in terms of the law. But what does it mean for us? Well, because, because of Jesus, we know that we need only repent of our sin and turn away from it to be washed clean. And we can call upon this amazing forgiveness and grace of God all the time. I don't uh, draw upon that amazing gift nearly enough in my own personal walk. I don't know about you. But I think here has it, it has an extra special significance for us as a body in worship and around this time, David wrote Psalm 24, and Psalm 24 describes this kind of procession. It's, it's a psalm of worship for this particular occasion of the ark. And in verse 3, he asks this question, Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? And the first thing he says is, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, 
It's the first thing he says. So we don't just repent because we want to be free from our sin or because it's an act of obedience. We repent because of the amazing, amazing blessing of God's presence that we miss out on if we don't. And that question, who wants to stand in God's holy place? It's sort of goading us all, isn't it? Of course we all do. We all do. Let's make sure we've got clean hands and a pure heart. It's also a sign of the fear of the Lord in our lives. And I don't want to dwell too much on the example of Uzzah. I don't think I'm all that qualified to do so. But I do want to just highlight the fact that he unthinkingly reaches out his hand to steady the ark. He's not consecrated. He's not mindful of the complete and utter holiness of God in that moment. And he treats the presence of God flippantly at an incredibly crucial moment in God's kingdom timeline. In repentance, we recognize that the presence of God deserves a clean and prepared place. So as we draw near to God in worship or together, I just want to encourage us to remember to use the gift of repentance as the first step in our journey together up the hill of the Lord. And there are lots of ways that we do this, and it needn't take long. We needn't dwell. We needn't get down on ourselves. That's not the point of repentance. We might want to make sure we adopt a kneeling position. Sometimes a posture of repentance can help us, can't it? We might want to just confess our sin. We might want to just take a moment at the beginning of, of a time of worship together just to get ourselves right with God. We might want to learn our own little personal liturgy. Some denominations have liturgy for this, don't they, at the beginning of every single meeting, and I don't think we necessarily need to do that, but I think it's really important that we consider how we come before God. So secondly, make a sacrifice. So in verse 13, seven bulls, seven rams sacrificed every six steps, and then in verse 17, there are more sacrifices, And sacrifice is a really key part of Old Testament worship. And it's kind of tricky for us because we no longer, we know that we no longer sacrifice animals. We don't have to do that. Jesus died, didn't he, as as a sacrificial lamb. Because of him, the curtain of the temple was torn from top to bottom, which enables us access to the presence and holiness of God. But that doesn't mean we should cease to bring sacrifices to God. I want to quote Matt Redman now from his book, Face Down. He compares Old Testament and modern worship, and he says this. Sometimes in our worship, the fire and the wood are there. In other words, outwardly, everything seems to be in place, and we think we're set for great worship. A skilled music team, perhaps, or above-average songs, and an enthralling preacher. But something is missing. Where is the sacrifice? I feel that God wants to highlight today afresh that he loves worship that is both beautiful and costly. And I'm thinking of the woman who breaks a jar of perfume over Jesus' feet and dries it with her hair, hence the picture you can't really see there, but it's a bottle of perfume exploding. And I think, I just want to quote David as well. David himself later in 2 Samuel says, I will not sacrifice to God that which costs me nothing. I think it would be such a blessing to God if we gave some time just to consider how we can bring him our worship in a beautiful and costly way. And that goes for each of us, and we're all different. I felt it was really important for me to say that for some of us, showing up is a sacrifice. 
perhaps you battle illness or fatigue or grief or doubt. And God sees, God wants to say today, God sees that your worship, your turning up is costly and beautiful. For others of us, though, I get like this. Sometimes when you're singing the same songs and you're showing up week on week, it's hard to find the time to think of something costly that you can do to demonstrate your love for God. We could take the time to write psalms or songs that really stretch our language to its poetic limits, not just borrowing phrases from other psalms, other songs, but something that's really deep and personal that comes from us. Perhaps we could paint paintings for no purpose other than because it's beautiful and it blesses God's heart. Maybe if we're administrative, we can administrate church gatherings and take more time over it, particular ones perhaps that might be a bit different, but that aims to bless God in a new way. It takes quite a lot of effort to include children, for example, but it's effort that's well worth being made because it blesses God's heart. Those are just a few examples, but I just want to encourage us to think personally, is there anything that we can do or bring as a sacrifice of praise to bless the heart of God? And lastly, lose your dignity. Okay, here's a tweet. Who's it about? Does anyone know? Can you read it? I'll read it. It says, please just stop. This isn't normal. And it's beneath the dignity of your office. Donald Trump. That's right. And actually, this particular criticism that X is beneath the dignity of your office is is a criticism that's often made of of Donald Trump. And (laughs) this isn't a political talk, but I'll just leave a a pause. Um, The role of the President of the United States has an expectation of dignity over it. And dignity does signify leadership. And in fact, a dignitary is a person considered to be important because of a high rank or office. And there's an implication of this in the passage too. And David has just been crowned king. And he uses the term, but a negative version of the term in relation to himself. And the term he uses, uh, which is translated as as undignified is the Hebrew word kalal, and it means being of little account of persons or being lightly esteemed. So in being undignified, David's bringing himself low and he's treating his kingship lightly, or if you will, not taking himself too seriously. But the use of the word in this, in this instance in relation to himself isn't just about him bringing himself low, it's also about public opinion. He's saying... I'll become even more lightly esteemed by others and myself than this. So if you remember those feelings of embarrassment from the beginning, embarrassment, I think, is made loads worse by public opinion. I sometimes get embarrassed of myself when no one's around. But generally speaking, when people are around, it makes it ten times worse. And our examples that we were talking about were probably quite trivial examples, weren't they? This is anything but trivial. This is crucial to David's identity, And he's willing to experience this and more. I'll become even more undignified than this. And why does he do it? In verse 21, it says, it was before the Lord. He knows who the real king is. 
the real dignitary. In Psalm 24, the psalm I mentioned earlier, he starts it by saying, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And at the end, in verse 10, he says, he is the king of glory. I might be king of Israel, but he's the king of glory and the earth is his and everything in it. None of it belongs to me. For David, a good king recognizes the real king. So I just want to spend a moment considering a Michal. Is it Michael? Everyone else? Consensus? Should be pronounced Michael? I thought Michael might be confusing because it sounds like a man. But I'll... Oh, okay. All right. Michael it is from now on. So I just want to spend a moment considering Michael. And Michael here, even though she's married to David, is referred to three times in this passage as the daughter of Saul. So she has been brought up in the royal household of Saul all her life. And she has a really specific idea of what kingship should be. Kingship is a status game. It's a game that you play by exhibiting your power for all of your enemies and your subjects to see. It's a performance of pomp and circumstance. And if you read about the kingship of Saul, you'll find that his desperation for power and status eventually led to his ruin. And where was the ark during his reign? I don't want to spend long on the barrenness of of Michael. Because what most commentators believe the writers are trying to communicate is that the kingship of Saul was to come to a resolute end. None of his descendants would bear any more kings. And the kingship of David, one that recognizes God as the king, one that cherishes the ark, which is the throne upon which that king sits, one that quickly learns from mistakes and takes great pains to steward the presence of God, is the new order of kingship. And the community, including those slave girls, will be blessed because of it. And God intended that David's legacy would never pass away. And Jesus, who is the descendant of David, went through the ultimate indignity. This is my body broken for you. And in Philippians 2, it says, He didn't consider his kingship something to be grasped, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. So through David's approach to kingship, God establishes his kingdom forever. And what can this mean for us? How can we imitate David by being undignified? So I think there are often uh, two different kinds of people. Those who love enforced dancing at church. And those who die a little bit inside every time it seems to happen. And I want to speak just quickly to this latter group, which is just to say, I don't think in this context that undignified means that you simply must get over yourself and have a wiggle. Um, Please don't feel guilty about the time when you went to the toilet, even though you didn't need to because you didn't want to join that conga line. (laughs) But there's something deeper going on here. What I'd love to see in our church is the overwhelming presence of God powerfully made manifest because we, as a whole body have laid down our dignity in honor of the true king. I'll say that again. What I'd love to see in our church is the overwhelming presence of God powerfully made manifest because we, as a whole body, have laid down our dignity in honor of the true king. 
I want to give quite a recent testimony along these lines because I believe it describes one, just one way that this could happen for us. A few years ago, there was a couple who came to this church called Anne and Trevor Luke. Lovely couple. I didn't know them well. They, were, they struck me as quiet and humble and very lovely. Every now and again uh, during worship, Trevor would surprise us all by throwing back his head and bringing this amazing tongue, this word from God. And I'd never personally heard anything like it. It was from a Baptist background, and I knew it was for God instinctively. Such was its strength and power. And also the fact that always an interpretation was brought, which we know from the Bible is, is important when a tongue of that nature is shared. And when they moved on from the church, I remember commenting to various different people, what a shame it was that no one seemed to possess that gift anymore. And that that aspect of God's presence was no longer made manifest in our worship together. And I even remember praying that God would give the gift to somebody else. A few months ago, during an extended time of worship, something happened to me which I still can't quite describe. It was amazing. I had a a trembling around my whole mouth, my face, and a shaking in my whole body, and I knew I had a tongue to bring. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. I had a decision to make. Do I sacrifice my personal dignity here? It was awkward. It was embarrassing. It sounded weird. It did not sound like Trevor Luke. (laughs) It sounded like something was fighting to get out and something else was fighting to get back in. Felt quite ill, actually. And I'd love to tell you that the leaders of the meeting were jumping for joy because of this rather bizarre manifestation. There was some kind of awkward, what do we do? (laughs) Quick, someone say something. But an interpretation was called for. And here's the thing. The interpretation came. And what's more, the interpretation came to someone who had never received that gift before. When we unseat ourselves from our personal thrones, we cease to get in the way of what our king really wants to do in our community. Not only can God become manifest in a new and powerful way, not only can he communicate through us, but we also enable and encourage the same and more in others in the body. Had I not done something that I felt embarrassed by for a time, another gift might not have been given in that moment, and a message about God's deep love wouldn't have been communicated to everybody. So my particular encouragement to us today, in our current context, is that we earnestly seek spiritual gifts in our worship, and we participate. I'm really pleased that Graham's word today was about choosing to engage, and it is often a choice. And it might come at a personal cost. But the reward is our king on the move. So I'm about to finish. Um, Just to summarize, we can learn from David's example that coming clean in worship enables us to approach God and receive the blessing of his presence. We also learn that God desires something beautiful and costly. And that it's worth taking the time to think about how we could do that. And lastly, in unseating ourselves and losing our dignity, we pave the way for the manifest presence of God in our worship together as a body. So I'll just finish by praying over us using the remaining words from Psalm 24. So let's pray. 
Lift up your heads, you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, you gates. Lift them up, you ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is he, this king of glory? The Lord Almighty, he is the king of glory. Amen.